Welcome to Dragon Talk. Hi, I'm Greg Tito, and I'm joined by... Who are you joined by today? Um, some really cool people. My name is Shelly Mazanoble. And she's very I'm neat. I'm the co-host of Dragon Talk, not Pelham. <laughs> Hashtag, Hashtag not Pelham. Not replaced. <laughs> it's happening. irreplaceable. It's true, you are irreplaceable. We lift you up here. We don't We don't give shit here. Really? <laughs> Because I have some tweets that speak otherwise. It's true. It well, really hurt my feelings. You know what hurt my feelings, though, what? was when I walked out of this conference room to try to find you, and you scared me so badly, I fell on the ground. I think you hurt your whole left side. I hurt my ego. And it your is, ego. It is gone forever. Uh, I made a very uh, uh, strong and, uh, you know, uh, ex- exclamation <laughs> of anger and resentment. As I fell to the ground. You know? It was great. You have these little things in your head that you can always reference, like, even years later, and they just still make you laugh. Yeah. That's going to be one of them. That's going to be one of them, because it was was too much. It was so good. It was too much. It was so good. Uh, So we, speaking of dramatic moments that you can never, uh, ever forget, we have two awesome people on the podcast today uh, that created that moment at the Stream of Many Eyes. Uh, Ooh. The, uh, Elisa Teague uh, created the puzzles uh, for the off the table sessions Brilliant. for the Stream Many Eyes, and Ivan Van Norman, uh, who uh, you know wrote a lot of the story along with Elisa uh, to string that all together on that Saturday programming, and Thank also you. was the dungeon master for the off the table also sessions. Also brilliant. Also brilliant. Yes, exactly. We're going to talk to them. Or actually, no, I am going to talk to them because Rub it in. unfortunately, I couldn't. I couldn't have my awesome co-host to ask the best questions. During this interview, so mm-hmm. I apologize yeah. for... Um, well, I apologize to the listeners. <laughs> yes, you should. <laughs> you should, because, I mean, honestly, you were here. You could have come in if you wanted wow, to. Wow, really? <laughs> really? I was Just at Origins for... Wednesday. It's true. And you did... So let's talk about Origins, because you did amazing stuff at Origins. What happened? So I was there to support Scott Van Essen, really, in demoing Axis and Allies and Zombies. He's the lead designer on it. So we had... A tank in our booth. A real tank. A real tank. People talked about this tank. It was leaking oil and everything. That's how <laughs> real it was. Oh, nice. And uh, we were planning on just doing, like, uh, was it like five demos throughout the course of the show? But we ended up doing eight because nice. there was a lot of overflow and a lot of interest. And Scott was just like, I can keep going. I'm just going to keep doing this. So um, it was the first time we demoed it really like outside of our playtesters. How did it go? What, how was the feedback? Awesome. Yeah. Yes. That's great. It really was. It, um, people really enjoyed it. They were loving the chaos that the zombies bring, and they were just getting confused about their strategies and, like, in a really fun way. Like, they were just like, I don't really know what to do here. Or they were trying to do their usual strategies, and it wasn't working. Yeah. And some people had the strategy of just, like, I'm just going to let the zombies go. I don't care. Like, you know, Russia's a really big country. There's plenty of room for all of us to coexist. Not so and much. then other people were like, "No, kill them immediately as soon as they pop up on the board." And it was just, it was, it was just fun to watch them. And there was actually a lot of new people who said, "I've never played Access and Allies, but oh, now really? I want to because that's I'm great. interested in the zombies." Because so. I think that's one of the great things that uh, it does is, uh, or you know, the Access and Allies and Zombies does is that like it is a way to, to play Access and Allies. That has a little bit of fantasy in it, but then is also like not super long. You know, you can, I mean, I like playing, you know, Access and Allies for long, long times, but there are folks who can only have an hour and a half or two hours to play a game, and you can totally play a session of that. You can play like maybe a couple rounds. Yeah. 
but uh, it's still like you probably need like a three hour at least a chunk of time to do to do this. But the setup is a little bit there's a there's an intro scenario in there in the rule book. So if you have never played Access and Allies, this is a it's a really good primer and it's a really easy setup and just runs you through a couple of, of turns so you get the feel for it. And if you do know access and allies, there's a one page in the rule book that's just like, here's what's different. Here's the changes. And go. Yeah. But the other thing that I love about this and people were kind of pretty excited about was it also includes an expansion for 1942. So if you have an access and allies 1942 game and you want to add zombies to that too, you can. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. That's so it's cool. a standalone game and an expansion. Uh, it's really cool. There's so many cool stuff in there. Right. And then Scott, didn't Scott get sick too? So like, were you having to do some demos that you didn't think you were going to have to do? No, thank God. Oh, but we, He made more than made up for that. But yeah, we had to lose a couple of, of demo spots because right. he got attacked by zombies. <laughs> That's the, the problem with zombies it, is it that they they constantly are, are up in your grill. It's a total risk. In your, of your real tank. But it was super fun. It was a really fun show. In yeah, general, like it got to meet. I went last year, too, and I loved it. And I really liked Columbus. And I just really liked meeting everyone. Yeah. And seeing like, people that listen to our show. Right. There were a lot of people uh, that I got to, to, to high five and yep. sign their books. Like I was like, that's crazy. Of course I will. But yeah. I don't understand. I don't know why you're asking me. Exactly. It was weird. Like people were like, oh, hey, Shelly. I'm like, how do you know me? And then from the live stream. Yeah. Now they know your face now. They know my face. Yeah. And your voice. I had a couple of people who like I, I said something or laughed and they were like, oh, that's Greg Tito. From, no. And they recognized me from the voice. I know. How crazy is that? That is weird. That is insane. What did you so, do at Origins that you were like so fresh as a daisy you could come to work on Monday? I just uh, wanted to experience it. I wanted to come in and see what Origins was all about. And it was great. I loved the D&D Open and Epics yeah, that they had fun. on uh, Friday and Saturday. Uh, just the, uh, you know, enthusiasm from so many of the D&D fans that were there uh, to participate in that and also get excited about Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which we just announced at yes. the Stream of Many Eyes. Very excited for that. So uh, real quick, we have that coming out on September 9th in game stores, Waterdeep Dragon Heist. That's an urban fantasy uh, set in the city of Waterdeep. You have to use your uh, uh, dis- diplomacy and deception and stealth to kind of get around some of the bad guys. There's some combat too, cool. but focuses on non-combat situations, which is a big reason why on the off-the-table sessions in our uh, interview we were talking about how can we – uh, uh, bring that forward, right? In, yep. in, in a heightened version of D&D. Um, so that's on September 9th. Uh, it'll be available everywhere September 18th. And we also talked about uh, Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which is under under Mountain, coming out on uh, November 2nd in oh. game stores and uh, November 8th. No, is that true? November 13th everywhere else. So that's crazy. Yeah. I'm excited about that one, too, yeah. because it is basically, uh, you know, the continuation of the story from Waterdeep Dragon Heist. If you defeat what's going on with the big uh, treasure horde of gold dragons below the city of Waterdeep, you can just continue exploring Underdeep uh, in that same thing, right? And so, it's also modular. You can use it, you know, oh, in other stuff, too. For what levels? Uh, the second one, uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, is levels, I think, 6 through 20. 20? Yes, it goes all the way up if you want to go all the way down to the bottom levels of Undermountain. Who doesn't? I know, right? You deal with Halster, that crazy... He's an insane wizard. Or a bad mage, depending on how you think about it. Did you just spoil who we're going to find down there? Oh, no, no. He's, he's a... He, yeah, I spoiled it. That Yeah, Spoiler. the Halster black cloak... Nobody knew that. ...is a jerk. <laughs> and he'll be out there. It's true. Nobody knew he was crazy. Well, if you... thought he was angry. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's miffed. He's like the dungeon of the miffed mage. Right. 
perturbed. That's what I was trying to get it to, perturbed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> perturbed perambulist. I don't know, I just made that up. That's not even a real word. English major. English major. English major. Uh, but if you want to find out more about uh, Waterdeep, Dragon Heights, and Dungeon of the Mad Mage, watch all the videos for the stream of many eyes. It's on our YouTube channel uh, as well as here on uh, the twitch.tv slash dnd channel. But more importantly, Dragon Plus. Hey, right? Dragon Plus. It's got tons of... Uh, previews for uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist, interviews with many of the people from the stream at Many Eyes, uh, including uh, Travis McElroy, who guested on Dice Camera Action. Awesome. Uh, and uh, there is an Adventure Zone, uh, the podcast that he is affiliated yep. with, with him Love and it. his family. Uh, Here There Be Gerblins. It's a graphic novel uh, that is previewed in the latest issue of Dragon Plus, and it includes an adventure written by Seriously? Griffin McElroy himself. There's that much content in there. Who's been on our who, show. Who is is not downloading Dragon Plus. Uh, people who don't want to get awesome content about so Dungeons I, and Dragons. It's free. Yeah. And there's a ton of content in there. It's true. And sneak peeks. Sneak peeks. And extras. And you can get it on your phone, you can get it on Android or iOS, uh, or you can get it on the web at dragonmag.com. All and that I content. I love the covers. The covers are great. The covers alone, you should Shauna be. Shauna Narciso does a great job making yep. those, those things happen. Yep. It's good stuff. She's good. All right. So we are going to push to our fun... Uh, segment. We had yeah. a lore segment. I talked to Chris on Monday, and uh, this one is about you know Dice Camera Action fans out there. If you watch the Uh-oh. weekly show, you might want to pay attention to this. Uh oh, is all I'm saying. It's about uh, some fun, some lore that you should know. Right. So let's bong it up. Welcome to another segment of Lore You Should Know. I am Greg Tito, and I'm here with Lore Master Chris Perkins. Hello. I am uh, alone with Chris Perkins in That's this right. here yeah. session. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mr. Master is out That's of great. the office, uh, but we wanted to record some new fun stuff here uh, for the Lore You Should Know segment where we uh, talk about little bits of Dungeons & Dragons lore that you can use in your game or just for fun. So Indeed. today we're going to talk about Maruts. Maruts. Ah, oh, Yes. From, uh, the, it was inevitable. Are they are they a new monster from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes? No, 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 no. no. Maruts trace their origins back to first edition with the original Manual of the Plains. Ah, they're planar entities. They are indeed. Yes, uh, native to the plane of Makanis, also in first edition known as Nirvana. Oh, and that was the plane of uh, of law. Correct? Plane of absolute law and order. Yes, it is the lawful neutral. Plane in uh, the where, outer multiverse. Where the Modrons also come from, is That's that true? That's exactly right. Yes, the Maruts and the Modrons share a common home. Ah, are they share a common creator? Uh, that, that would depend on the edition in, <laughs> in which we, we, we entrench ourselves. Uh, but currently, yes, they do. Oh, okay. Uh, we basically say uh, now, in the current edition, that Primus, the one in the prime, the overlord of Makanis, the overlord and creator of all the Modrons is also responsible for the creation of a group of creatures known as Inevitables, of mm-hmm. which a Marut is one. All right. What are, uh, what are the Inevitables? What's, what's that whole category before we get to the Maruts? So the Inevitables are constructed creatures. Um, they are uh, uh, built to, well... Let me take one step back. 
In the earliest edition, when they first appeared, they were built to basically enforce the laws of the multiverse. Mm -hmm. To make sure that nobody out there was doing anything to basically bust the way the multiverse works. And over time, uh, their mission has evolved. The inevitable's purpose has evolved. And um, as of their appearance here in Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes, their purpose is to enforce contracts. Mm. Um, now, in 4th edition, they were actually also, or in 4th edition, inevitables, their purpose was to basically keep gods in check. Okay. If there was a conflict between gods, the Maruts and their other inevitable buddies could step in and try to mitigate were they that conflict. like arbitrators or were they, they were more like it depended on the role of the inevitable but basically they were there to make sure that the gods didn't upset the cosmic balance with mm. their shenanigans because they were beings of such great power Correct. they needed a special yes. police force almost to but the common through line with all inevitables is they are beings of pure uh, unadulterated law who don't have any real perspective other than to preserve the absolute order of things. Mm -hmm. That has been consistent all the way through their design. Now, inevitables come in a variety of forms. The Marut is the one, was the first one that we ever described, and it has appeared in various editions over the years as kind of uh, the archetypal inevitable. Mm -hmm. And then there are other kinds of inevitables that have sort of been created to sort of flesh out that family over the years. What does, a, uh, what does a Marut look like? A Marut uh, has changed appearance, but uh, for a number of years, they looked like big, giant centurions mm. with obsidian skin and gold-colored armor with sort of big helms, but basically look like big, beefy guys, you know, head, mm -hmm. arms, legs, stomping around punching things with their huge fists. Got it. They kind of look like, uh, I mean, other than the, the, the black uh, stone of uh, obsidian, do they look like sentinels from, like, the X-Men universe? A little bit, yeah. There, there is definitely a resemblance there. Okay. Now, with 5th edition and uh, Murdy Curdy's term of first, <laughs> we took, uh, we played with some of the designs. Richard Witters, one of our art directors, basically spearheaded a reconcept of the art. Um, and sort of tying it more into Primus and Modrons gave it more of a sort of mechanical butch Modron look. Kind of like a clockwork. Exactly. So feel. it's got a big eye and it's, it's got like little wings, mm -hmm. almost like vestigial wings that sort of come off its back. Uh, and it still looks pretty ominous and hulking, but there's a, it's a little bit more playful and... I would say its its silhouette or its profile is probably a little bit more distinctive than it used to be. Okay. Um, and as we describe Maruts in uh, Tome of Foes, they are created on Makanis by, in essentially, these forges. Um, they're sort of Van Neumann-esque machines that make machines kind of forges. They're spit out. And then they basically just wait around until they're called to the Hall of Concordance in mm. Sigil. And that happens whenever two parties want to forge an agreement and cement it in the form of a cosmic or multiversal contract. They converge and meet at the Hall of Concordance in Sigil, where a being called the Colia Root presides and basically sits there 
while these two sides hash out the contract, it becomes a for reals contract. <laughs> and is, is then, it, does it have a physical form or is it a paper so, or is it? So the terms of the contract, once both parties agree to it, and the, call, the Collier route doesn't give it a flying fig what the terms are. It's just there to sort of make sure that the contract Once process happens. Upon, yeah, exactly. That, that contract um, is then signed and recorded and then stamped into the Marut. Oh. So the Marut has this sort of chest plate, this circular disc-shaped chest plate. That contract is basically inscribed upon that. Interesting. So that should one party decide not to fulfill the terms of the contract, the Marut will make sure that those terms get fulfilled in the only way it can, which is to show up and basically kick your head in until you <laughs> agree to these agree terms. Until you fulfill or uphold <laughs> your end of the agreement. So the Marut is used as a form of punishment. Yes. Uh, I, I, I love that there was like, oh, does it have a physical form? And then you're like, the Marut is the physical form <laughs> yes, of the contract. Exactly. It is the physical representation of the contract. It has the contract stamped into its being yeah. to remind you that that's what it is. And when it comes knocking on your door, watch out. Because when this thing hits you, it hits you automatically. No attack roll required. It Yeesh. never misses. And it's got a blistering array of other um, abilities as well. Uh, it is, in Mordenkainen's, a CR-25 what? monster. Which is like higher than a few of the demon lords? That's correct. Wow. Yeah. So, hey, law in the cosmos is serious, serious business. <laughs> uh, It'll come, it, like the actual physical representation of law will come and, and kick your butt. And you down. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. All right. And so that's essentially the, the sole function of the Marut in this edition. And like I said, in previous editions, their mission was a little bit different, but kind of their role has always stayed the same. They come in once something has gone wrong right. and they fix it through force of might. And they're the enforcers of, yes. of these planar contracts. Now, exactly. do, they do, do they do it for, for contracts that are not done at the Hall of Concordance and stamped into their thing? No, although it's conceivable that there are other places in the multiverse like the Hall of Concordance where yeah. a powerful being can call forth a Marut and Primus will let one out of you know the forges out of Makanas to go and answer. It's, it's not clearly said here or anywhere else that there's only one place in the entire cosmos where a Marut okay. can basically be dispatched. Um, are they unlimited? Is there an infinite number of them? or are they Unknown. Um, it, we really don't say. So in your campaign, there may only be one. Right. Um, or in your campaign, there may be 100 or there may be virtually unlimited. The chances of you in any given campaign encountering more than one Marut is pretty remote. Right. Yeah. Because... It's either they kill everything, or right. or yes. you yes. agree to the or, yes. you, know, you agree to the terms yeah. of the contract. Yeah, generally speaking, after one shows up, you're not really interested in seeing another one. So, as a as a dungeon master, yes, how would you use these? Funny, uh, you should ask. <laughs> I know, I'm, just, I'm like, there's usually a reason why you've been researching topics, Chris Perkins, and uh, see those yeah. of you who are yes, watching not, Dice Camera Action. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, we're we're not simply talking about this because it appeared in this book. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, truth be told, in my weekly campaign, Dice Camera Action, which tries to show off sort of the, sto the story du jour, you know, the, our main story for the year. Yeah. Um, I do like to drop things in from our most current books and such. And as it happens, uh, a couple seasons ago, 
uh, one of the characters sacrificed herself to save her friends. And uh, using a questionable ritual uh, performed by uh, Dr. Rudolf Van Richten, Mm -hmm. a priest and vampire hunter, uh, he took an old Vistani wedding ritual, basically, a marriage of souls ritual, and used it to to accomplish this goal. And Evelyn, our paladin, transferred parts of her soul into two rings which were given to Diath and Strix, two of her companions. And Diath and Strix accepted those rings willingly and unknowingly to them became bound by this ritual, which wouldn't be a problem except little did they realize that their two families have a multiversal conflict and that ages and ages and ages ago, those two families signed a celestial contract saying they would never ever come together again. Oh. Uh, so. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <It's... laughs> okay. So, I was wondering uh, how anyway. that was going to resolve itself, and yeah. uh, so, it's still, still unclear. But uh, So in last week, I think it was last week's, and obviously the timing will be off because this will air at a later time, and yeah. people will be confused. But in a previous C-Team game, Jerry Holkins had um, one of my players, Jerry Knobenbauer. He, he loves contracts. Yes. Oh, Omen, Omen Drawn oh, is yeah. a big you fan know, of contracts. You know that Omen knows all about Maroots and that kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. And, um, suffice he's got to say, posters of them up on exactly. his, uh, the ceiling of his bedroom. Yeah, Jerry had one of my players, uh, Jared Knobenbauer, and his character DF on the C-Team recently and tipped off to DF this notion that there's a Marut coming for them. Oh, dear. So... Anyway, that is all right. So, it can be used as a punitive measure, right? So, uh, even though I have never brought up the Marut in my game, my players now are terrified <laughs> that this is going to show up. So, thank you, Jerry. And, and it could happen, you know, next session. Yeah. It could happen twenty sessions timing, from now. Right? Timing is little, you know, hard hard to tell exactly when a Marut might show up, but there's one stomping its way toward Waterdeep right now, very slowly. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, that, that's one example of how you could use it. But, yeah, right, it can be, it can be the threat, just the threat of a Marut, uh, I, I feel like, could be really illustrative yes. in a campaign. Yes, yes. And a Marut might show up incidentally if, like, for instance, characters unknowingly meddle in something that's basically, you know, been contracted to outcome a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like if, for instance, you take, a, you take a job for somebody and it turns out that job runs counter to a conflict. Mm. Like maybe you, a characters are basically even get given a task of eliminating some evil person, and they do. But unknowingly, that might break the terms of a contract. You could see a Marut come to them, um, you know, yeah. to basically extract some kind of vengeance. Although it doesn't care. But it's, but it's going to do what it's programmed right, to do. Exactly. Now, is there any recourse? Is there any weakness to these creatures? Is there any one you can, like, can you... Uh, uh, Weaknesses. Uh, yeah. Let's see. <laughs> None. Uh, <laughs> That's it. You're dead. Yeah, you're dead. Uh, but, I mean, can you, can you, I mean, because, you know, there's, uh, justice is never black and white. There's always Correct. a gray area. Yes. And, as, as uh, of course, a, a, you know, extreme lawful neutral entity might not agree with that, but... Yep. Is there any other power to appeal to? So you can often, like a Marut has an ability to basically take you back with it to the Hall of Concordance or wherever oh. it was sent to. 
you could basically go back with it and try to either plead your case to the Kali route upon your arrival mm -hmm. or um, just try to deal with it on that end since, you know, it, a Marut has no problem just taking the malefactors back to where the deal was forged and have them oh. deal with it. So, and that could potentially lead to more dramatic yes. sessions of D&D play. Correct. So that, yes. that's actually a very good yes. thing. Um, you could also theoretically try to bluff the Marut. Um, Maruts, while they consider themselves to be infallible, <laughs> don't necessarily consider others to be infallible. So it's possible that they, they were given false information or you can trick them into thinking they were given false information, mm. force them to go back, double check what's going on. That you, you might forestall the inevitable. So to speak, or at least give you some time. But it gives you some time to like build a bunker and <laughs> buy some food and <laughs> hide down there. Do they have? Uh, I mean, to that point, do they have like magical detection? Uh, you know, omniscience in that way. Like, would you would you be able to be hide from them? So yeah, you can actually hide from the Maroots. They're they're they don't necessarily have the ability to track things unerringly. Um. So that might be a fun just whole campaign Correct. story of like, yes. you know, there's one coming for us. You know, yes. what do we do? Well, let's help all the people we can yep. in the meantime, like the yep. A-team. If you are going to lie to a Marut, just be warned, it has a plus 10 bonus on its insight check. So so you better be pretty devious. Yeah. yeah. Or, or be able to bluff like any good dungeon master can. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So... Cool. Interesting. Uh, I, I love all the new uh, high-level challenges uh, in, in Mordekin and Stomophos, and this seems like one that you could, you know, it's not just a big bad. It's something that has purpose and story behind it. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's always a, an interesting challenge for DMs to try to play lawful neutral. Yeah. Um, this sort of not bound by evil or good um, role. And uh, the Maruts are one of the best representatives of a lawful neutral creature in the game. And uh, have been around a surprisingly long time. Although they, because of their very nature, they don't tend to show up very often in adventures. It's more the type of thing that's likely to happen in a customized campaign. Mm -hmm. um, right, that makes sense. Yeah. Because, because of all the reasons we just listed, it's much more about story rather exactly. than some yes. kind of programmed thing, right? Yes. Uh, very cool. Well, I hope uh, uh, more people will use it uh, uh, going forward. It's a great way to bring about great big ideas and, and, and contracts and, yep. and, and how great they are. So That's right. I love it. Yeah. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, Chris, on uh, Twitter or other places, where, where, where can they do that? I am on Twitter at Chris Perkins DND. They will ask you all about law. and uh, That's right. <laughs> you will give them all of the, the, the lowdown on, the lowdown. <laughs> on how to get yeah. away from a Marut. Thank you for that. Uh, thanks. And we'll be back with uh, another Lore You Should Know uh, next week. So what did you think of all that fun stuff, right? Crazy. I know. Oh my God. When I give it up to Chris Perkins to be like, hey, what's lore, the lore you want to talk about? I'm like, don't – something you don't have to prep or something you're already prepping. That's immediately like he's like, all right, I know something that is going to be thrown in my games he's pretty soon. He's just got the lore all up in there. It's, well, I mean, every, they got to research a little membrane. bit. In the membrane. He's insane. Membrane. Got no brain. <laughs> Uh, he is indeed, but it was a great uh, conversation. And uh, this following interview is also a really good conversation that I wish my friend and co-host was going to be there for. Well, this is an episode of Dragon Talk that I can listen to. That's true. <laughs> I will listen. You'll skip through all this part and then <laughs> oh, get sure. right to uh, skip the intro. This, this dorky interview in which yeah. me and uh, Elisa Teague and Ivan Van Orman talk about our and process. Who else? Just those three. 
Oh, yeah. Pelham wasn't there. Pelham was in the room when it happened. Oh, I thought he was. Uh, but uh, but no, I I asked him to join for the intros and outros just in case we weren't going to be able to record these. No way. So he's not part of it at all. It's true. I know. Isn't that sad? Oh, sorry. Pelham. So pour one out for Pelham, even though he did an amazing job putting together so much I, of I love Pelham. This stuff for uh, the stream of many eyes. He did. Um, so shout out to him for he's that. Great. He's uh, the greatest. Yeah, couldn't have done it without him. Yep. Uh, except this interview, I, I did do it. But you can do it. There are some things. So let's listen to it now. Uh, but no, she is recovering uh, from being at Origins Game Fair. Uh, I came in today to work, even though I was also at Origins, but I understand she had a lot more stuff to do. Uh, but I'm here, and I get to talk to these uh, two fine people who I've been talking to a lot, uh, as it turns out, the last six months, uh, working on the stream of many eyes. So we are joined again by Elisa Teague. Hi, Elisa. Hello. And Ivan Van Norman. Hello, sir. Hello, hello. Uh, so, yeah, we uh, embarked on this crazy project to have uh, the off-the-table sessions, what we ended up calling them, uh, for this stream of many eyes. I was inspired a lot, uh, by, Ivan, by your work with uh, Saga of the Sundry and uh, uh, the amazing performances and storytelling and gamification of this crazy tabletop role-playing game stuff that we love. Uh, and I was uh, like, what if we could do it fantasy T- uh, tinted, uh, and tinted we did rose-colored glasses. Instead of putting a horror lens behind it, let's see if it works in fantasy land. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we started working on this. I feel like in 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 craziness around like January, right? End of January, early February was when. Yeah, well, like you said, we've been talking a lot. We've been talking yeah. so much, all of us, uh, constantly leading up up into this whole bit. But yeah, no, it was. It was a weird little bit. I was a little honestly terrified when you first approached me. It was like, okay, well, I did it for horror, but will it work for Dungeons and Dragons, which is so um, uh, different in so many different ways, right? And not did. just to to tape, but live as well. Live, live. <laughs> Uh, so before we, uh, you know, get into the nitty gritty of, of how we did all that, uh, uh, I, I realized, Ivan, there might be some folks who, who don't know of Sagas of Sundry and your, and your background. Uh, oh, of so, like what the heck that even is. Exactly. The, 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 the sauce is, exactly. so to speak. Yeah. So yeah, give uh, a, give a, and also, uh, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, your background as, as far as, you know, uh, playing of games and all that stuff too. Yeah, uh, so, oh, man, we International Tabletop Day, not last year, but the year before, we decided to kind of, um, uh, we decided to kind of, like, run a session of Dread. And Dread, for people who may not be aware of it, is a uh, an indie RPG session co-designed by Ebediah Ravichal, in which they use a Jenga tower in order to make motivate like story as it's being pushed forward so you pull a block from the tower when uh, you know a a successful or potentially failure action could occur and as you pull more blocks from the jenga tower the more likely you are to fail Mm -hmm. and once the tower falls um something miserable happens to your character so it's a glorious tension and suspense building mechanic that's built on top of a, a storytelling game and so i loved it we played it on tabletop um you know uh two years even before then and people loved it and so we ran it for tabletop day and it was such a hit that the creative director marisha ray at the time um was like oh my god can we do this again um but you know can we make it into a whole series i'm like well whew, okay <laughs> kind of built for a one-off 
I don't know how much we could build into a series, but then we started having a conversation about it and uh, elongating it and turned into what if we added props and then what if we built a set around it and then everyone can be in costume and what if we, what if there was no table? You know, what if it was just the tower sitting there and we kind of slowly snowballed into this weird creative like pseudo high school theater, but also a role playing game right. experimental thing. I say high school theater, but I really meant experimental theater. Uh, but it, it and it and it ended up not sucking, Greg. You know, which is really all I could hope for when I put together a show. That's the that goal of any project suck. that you that you want, right? Like, let's just have it not suck. Yeah. Let's just have it not suck. Yeah. And uh, there was a good response to. There's enough of a response to. They made another season out of it, in which we built a freaking 1920s hotel loft, and it was madness. Um, the season after two of Dread, and uh, it was pretty fun. They put it. Project Alpha was the people who financed it, so it sits on their platform, but it's also out on like Verve, VRV.com, which you can get on your um, uh, next-gen console of choice, uh, as well as, I think, Amazon.co.uk has it as well, too. Uh, Interesting. So, Good, yeah, definitely um, check it out if uh, if you want to see uh, the inspiration for, for, for where these uh, off-the-table sessions... So came from yeah and it's awesome and you got you know matt mercer and satine phoenix and and, right. uh, and liam o'brien and uh, eric ishi and uh, sander Jaffe, uh from sander. the library bards like just yep. yeah and, and it's so yep. many different like doing performances that you haven't seen them done anything similar ever before they were all dramatic they were beautifully dramatic performances that were done with like dedication to the character you know we all love our interactive non-scripted storytelling right but they took this like they were actually you know on a stage amidst like a, a, a live a live audience and they and they performed with their heart and soul like this it's the same kind of performances that you would expect out of like non-scripted shows like spinal tap and parks and rec but instead of comedy it's drama yeah and it's oh. it's suspense and horror and 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 danger around every pull right Right, uh, yes. Uh, so but then, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say, and that you know that, that, that uh, just even the word pull, we ended up pulling forward into this when you had your oh I, have, I forgot to bring the deck of cards. Damn it, they're in on my desk. But you had the deck of cards that oh. people could pull from in order to uh, uh, find out uh, things that they might need to know in right. the water deep setting. So when when Elise, when Elise and I first started talking about it, because she she pretty much. I mean, when we sat down to put this together, um, uh, she was going to be writing the puzzles, and then, but you also wrote the entire storyline pretty much with me. We had to talk about ways that we could break the mechanic because right. I did the similar thing with Adam Lawson, who directed Sagas of Sundry with me. So Elisa was kind of like my Adam Lawson. Um, you know, if that's that makes right. That to you. Is that weird, Elisa, to call you my Adam Lawson? Is that, is that it's odd? okay. Adam's cool. Yeah. That was cool. <laughs> you can't see my faces that I make when you're talking, so. Yeah, that's right. I know, right? She's basically know. been talking. She's been commenting on what you've been saying this whole time with her faces. Uh, <laughs> it, it, always always in good ways. Uh, but, yeah, no, so that, then, you know, I, I loved what you had done, but I was like, oh, it should be fantasy. And I, and I loved uh, the puzzles being used in Dungeons & Dragons games uh, so much. And I wanted to, you know, pull on your expertise, Elisa, to see, like, how can we bring kind of like a puzzle room uh, aesthetic to a, a story that would unfold over the course of, of, of several sessions of Dungeons and & Dragons. So then, yeah, and we talked yes last week about the ARG and, and how the puzzles interacted with that as well. 
Right. And bringing puzzles into Dungeons and Dragons is an art in itself. It's it's a little bit different than just regular puzzle solving. Um, but bringing it into a uh, live stream with a very set amount of time uh, yes. was a whole other animal. And that was a, a cool challenge that we met and it worked out. I don't think it could have worked out more perfectly as far as timing was concerned because the whole time I was like, well, they're either going to get these puzzles right away or maybe they're not going to solve them at all. And every single, we had four puzzles, every single one of them came down to minutes before we had to yell cut where they had their aha moment and solved it. Thank goodness. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was no way to tell if they were going to get it or not. Um, it was it was very nerve-wracking, but exciting. And that's what you want out of a puzzle, usually, too. You yeah. want it to go to that level. You want it to be like, oh, oh, yeah. I don't know, I don't know, I don't get it, I don't know, I don't understand, and then pff, I got it. And then you want to have that moment happen, you know, very very close to the end of, of the piece of content, in a way. Mm-hmm. And unscripted shows just like this is the same. It's kind of doing it live was the same challenge as anything else. It's like we have no idea where they're going to go. We have a time frame in which we need to live inside of. So we just kind of have to set the stage and see what happens. So it can be really uh, – well, I, I even think about like when you put together a classical puzzle room, you have like lots of soft openings in which people test it and then they make modifications after that. It's like Lisa tested it a lot on her own, but we didn't get to test it with like any kind of live camera equipment or anything. Just kind <laughs> of yeah, live happened. camera equipment. We, I obviously couldn't test it on set and a lot of these puzzles were actually built into the set itself. So, you know, everything changed. And also we had NPCs that had lines that to deliver. Um, and if they weren't delivered exactly correctly maybe a puzzle hint could be misconstrued so there were there were a lot of factors that had to be juggled but it it turned out great yeah so when you guys were 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 meeting to get together and we were talking about the story and how it would progress and we had we wanted to be integrated with the the four uh, on the table sessions as well so there was this this progression of right. information that passed from one uh, session to the other what was it like uh, uh, trying to come up with ways to get the puzzles out there? And and maybe Elisa, I can, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever asked you this question. It's like, why did you choose the puzzles that you chose, and and why did you think they make the most sense? Well, um, the well, the first puzzle that we did was in the Yawning Portal, and of course, the Yawning Portal is a tavern, and and I love. One of my the classic puzzles that I like to do um, is that menu puzzle when in my own tabletop games that I run. So I adapted one of my standard puzzles to fit the storyline and everything, the answer that we needed to give. And I actually made that menu board sign that was behind Dernan the whole time. I don't know if anybody. Uh, that was uh, you. Yeah, if, if, no, well, I don't know if the people at home watching realized until they, they really started working on it that that is a puzzle. And if, if for some reason you guys didn't get it and want to go back and watch again and see if you can figure out the puzzle yourself, um, that's still there for your viewing pleasure. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I knew right away that I wanted to do the, the menu puzzle for Yawning Portal. There was no question about it. And I, it loved, I love that so you're pretty. someone who has like, I, like, I have a standard puzzle. You're like, oh, here's my standard puzzle that well, I, I have like, they're like in my bag. Like, you have like many that you can just pull out at any moment and, and, and bring well, into after something. Well, you've written like hundreds of puzzles for various things, it's not that I, I don't reuse them, but there are standard types of puzzles. Right. So this one, um, 
is one that I just thought would be a really good puzzle to start off this team with because I had no idea how they would do with puzzles in general. And puzzles are tricky. You also want to definitely write puzzles for games where I'm role-playing games where you're playing to the character's wisdom or intelligence when they're solving and not necessarily the player. And so I was really trying to get a grasp for who our, our characters were going to be, what their stats would be, and how what kind of puzzle they would be able to solve. Mm. Because I like to put things really in-world and in-game. So that one was definitely... Uh, one that I knew for sure. And then the rest kind of came out naturally while working with Ivan on the story. We sat down um, for breakfast or coffee or a combination, I guess it was both. And we kind yeah, of... Like, I think we did a breakfast, yeah. Yeah, and and we just like hashed out all the plot points and I don't know, they just kind of came out. I'm like, oh, we could do this and it just worked. So we kind of wrote them at the same time. Yeah, it was a. Uh, it was interesting because I had up until this project, minus you know, we were chatting a little bit offline before this, minus you know, her writing a module for the RPG that Jonathan Gilmore and Douglas Ivansky did with me called um, uh, Kids on Bikes. We hadn't really worked on anything together, but she kind of submitted that module. This is the first time her, her and I actually like sat at a table and worked on a project together. And I, I don't think her and I even knew we were going to be working on a project until Greg was like, oh, and by the way, Elise is doing this. And, oh, by the way, Elise. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that you were on it until I saw the group email Email regarding you know the flight to fly up to Seattle to to have our first meeting and I saw your name like oh Ivan's the other writer right. so and, and we and I remember years, sitting we just in, never worked on anything yeah that's just usually just uh that is sometimes how it goes and uh, that first meeting that we had up in the Seattle offices when we basically hashed out like what the overarching piece and because that first real brainstorming session was. Um, it, it, there was actually a lot of things that ended up changing from that session, but a lot of the stuff ended up staying the same. We determined what the sets were going to be, like what the main right. the sets were going to be. And then we determined how we were going to kind of get to those three sets. Because, you know, you had parameters too, Greg, of like, we're going to build, you know, we're going to build Waterdeep and we're going to build the Yawning Portal. Mm -hmm. And so with knowing that we had those in place, we, we kind of fit the storyline to make that work. Plus on top of the games that... Um, that the players are going to run. So originally the session was supposed to be, we were actually going to have a player from each one of the tables for on the table sessions. We were going to have a representative from each one of those tables players be in the off the table session. Um, yeah, we latched on that, that idea the, early because we liked that kind of representative of like, oh, there's yeah, th that's so the reason why they're together. It, I think at one point we even called it a super group because it was like the group, yeah. like the people made out of other other members of the group, and then that it was totally a Justice League yeah. slash you know Avengers uh, version <laughs> of it, where they were all kind of coming together, sending their representative uh, in order to, to to bring it together. Right, which but would then, have been totally cool, but of, the logistics of that it was very difficult to do. It'd be like, oh, how are they going to come from one group to the other, and and you know have it be the seamless yes. transitions that we wanted it to be. Yes. It ended up being a lot more challenging to, to pull it off in a way that made it make sense versus just the idea itself. So uh, when Elise and I sat back and kind of readjusted 
adjusted it based on those notes, we kind of came to where we were now, which was um, which was a way to kind of like bring Satine into that as like her own rep, but it was, everyone was kind of unique and on their own as far as the storyline goes, but they were being affected by the chaos around them between like, you know, Satine sending her sirens in and then, you know, her going to the group and then, um, you know, dice camera action, uh, kind of like setting it all up the day before. Um, and then uh, Dark and Dicey, which I still will always remember that game with Dark and Dicey when they spent the entire day chasing that stone. Spoilers, by the way. Um, <laughs> spoilers ahead. Uh, no worries. All they good. spent the entire entire day chasing that stone. And at one point, one of the players asks them, are we in trouble because of you? And the stone's like, well, yep. It's <laughs> like throws it over his shoulder <laughs> and barely recover it. But uh, I, I loved the drama around that. It was so good. I did too. So. I did too. I loved it too. And I, 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 I completely actually forgotten that the, the, the session of brainstorming uh, in up here in the offices where we got all the writers from uh, Dungeons and Dragons, the concept artists, and kind of we'll talk through a little bit about you know what the Dragon Heist storyline was all about, so that you know you guys had had access to. Uh, the story guide, which kind of gives the overviews of the themes and some major characters that will be in it, uh, but you don't, you don't really get uh, a full sense of it until you have like you know Chris Perkins be able to be like, hey, this is what this story is is going to be about. Oh. And then yeah, we spent a good two or three hours in that room, really hashing out the skeleton of of, of what the plot right. is going to be. And they would just need to fill it out. Yeah. And then after after like Elisa and I sat down with it more, all I had to really do was just fill it out for the players. And then it was so pivotal. And Elisa brought this up several times but it's so pivotal that like certain information be protected to the players so that it doesn't basically ruin the puzzles yeah you know and that was just between a lot of a lot of contractors so to speak it was kind of hard to make sure that they all knew the vitality of that information but, uh, <laughs> as even, far even as just on set that day it was so yeah. hard because i had to like before i say something you know like oh we need to set the and I was like, is there no one here is there no one here okay none of them are here this <laughs> is what we need to do uh <laughs> because we didn't want to spoil anything for them a lot of people may think that this was semi-scripted, but it really wasn't. Even with Satine, the funniest thing, I love Satine so much. Um, she she DM'd, you know, the first game, the Sirens game, which then led into her playing the off-the-table game as a character, and she had clues that she was delivering for puzzles um, in her game. So we dropped clues throughout all of the on-the-table games, and each of these games connected to the other. So everybody needed to be paying really close attention so that they could know what, what, how to solve the puzzles later. And the more they paid attention, the better off they would do with the puzzles. And Satine was dropping clues in her game that she was DMing and then forgot the clue when she would lie. <laughs> on camera, Wait, what is it that I said? And she, she took a moment and she really didn't remember, which was perfect because... You know, I was scared that she was ha- she would have like player knowledge or whatever, but she didn't, and it was perfect. Right. So, she, was, th- was that the time where she said the name of the noble and she completely butchered yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She yeah. blended she, Bella Branta and Umkathra together into one <laughs> super game, but it was perfect. <laughs> yeah, her just, whole uh, that whole leading those those crew is just wild because it is, especially on that big open set, I kind of felt like Mr. Rogers guiding people through the neighborhood and right. then stuff is just happening everywhere. Like, um, it was so different, Greg. It's live is so different. It's so hard, but it's yeah. so satisfying. 
it ended up being, yeah, the, I think that first session we were a little bit like, oh, gosh, how is this going to work, right? Because it was this cramped space right. that was harder to put people where you needed them to be kind of in a way, right? Like, so, right. yeah, right. because and it was live. Always, and always, and as always, this is the classic uh, DM fault. It's like you, you, you have to literally shade in every single corner because I – I readily assumed they were going to be spending a lot of time on this puzzle because it was right in front of them and Bonnie was going to be delivering it. But they were so wrapped up in talking with everybody in the tavern that uh, I, I, I literally should have seen that coming. And we worked with it beautifully and it was fine. Everyone did have enough information in order to make it, to make it okay. But it was one of those things where like we might the wrong people. (laughs) 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 We didn't have enough mics to cover everybody inside of that tavern. And it would have, it, it just was one of those. Okay, well, here we go. That's why we have a boom. So let's do this. Let's make it work. And And plus, uh, you know, we made, we made uh, uh, the characters in, that tavern be too uh, you know, exciting and uh, to to pass up. They were a conversation so excited. With. How could you, you not can't really go to not Chris talk Lindsay. to Elminster or Mert? I mean, they're sitting in there. There was no way they weren't going to go over and talk to them. That's that's for sure. I but know. just like in any on like normal home game, you have to plan as a DM that your players may you know go off you know your chosen path and go and explore a different area or talk to different people. And they did, but we brought it back around. Yeah. Or Ivan brought it back around. Ivan right? brought it back around. I was waving frantically uh. behind the camera like, <laughs> No! <laughs> Do this! <laughs> I actually, one of my favorite memories of the day is always going to be Elisa with the whiteboard with notes. You know? <laughs> it's just like, it was Elisa's writing being like, I think one of them was, uh, and, and sometimes they would be vague enough that I wouldn't get it at the half a second that I'd be able to like look at it before I'd have to pull my, my head away. Um, but it would usually be like, bring Bonnie or, like, <laughs> you know, or well, get the, the menu. Was that or, I didn't want to give any if the players looked at me for any reason oh, i didn't I want didn't to give them clues so i was trying to write oh, right. my clues in code to you um <laughs> we should have had like those football hand signal or baseball i don't know one of those <laughs> hand signals then um, we would have forgotten all of those too and then been really up shit's creek i didn't even think about that lisa how that's so true like if you had written something that would have been a lot more direct here's the clue <laughs> you don't look at this you look at this yeah. So, yeah, it was it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, that, that day was stressful but super fun. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Ivan. I mean, talk a little bit about how different it is dungeon mastering for something like that, while also you know being in costume and being on camera and knowing that you know so much of this is kind of riding on 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 the you know your ability to make this feel real for the audience. Uh, it's I don't know. It's uh, doing them in. A, I think the biggest thing for me that just made it feel a lot more. Uh, pressure is just the fact that it's live. Like there just really isn't one of the glories that we had around sagas to be able to do is, is that we, if, if a movement wasn't quite correct or if a piece of information was lost or even if sound was bad, you know, we could basically say, okay, hold, you know, then the, the sound guy would come in, check the player's mic, go and test, and then we'd go right back into it. And that just kind of allows it, that protects the quality of the stream a lot more. It's like an insurance 
insurance policy, I felt it. It's like we had we had the capabilities of making sure that sound was good, picture was good, that all the coverage that we were getting is accurate. And right. um, the challenges that we had with this one that really made it feel different is, is that we, we could only have so many cameras on the set. You know, so we only had so much coverage that we could cover between myself and the four players and whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. So it was very much a dual brain where you're trying to think like a you're trying to think like a director a little bit like you're trying to think like a film director of like, how is this looking and where am I going with this? But at the same time, still DM be a dungeon master, like guide the story, provide the information you bit, give them the little taps they need in order to go into different directions and yeah. just ensure that um, everything's being explored. And like I said earlier, it was um, some things that you think are going to be totally fine aren't. And sometimes the things that you were totally worried about go along completely fine. And that's just the glory of unscripted storytelling, which, you know, I, I told, uh, I've been cramming this acronym into people just because I like how it represents people so much, but it's theatrical drama, reality, role-playing games. So it's different than how LARPing works, where LARPing is very much everyone is the PC, like everyone is a player character in their own story, and they're trying to give other people um, you know, moments of glory. Like I've been told that in LARPs, one of the best things about LARPs is that everyone lifts everybody else up. Hmm. Um, but this one is about a cast of characters that are going through a storyline. And if you have people like Elminster and Mert on the side, well, it's not their story. They're a part of the story, but it is not their story. In a LARP, they would be their own story They'd as well. They'd have their own story as well, right. Yeah, but that's in, interesting. But in, but in this one, they are supporting the story. And so there's still a lot of um, a dramatic performance, like a, a you know, I guess, honestly, stage is probably the, probably the most accurate way to describe this, whether you're filming stage or doing it live. And I think the, the, to come back and make it, make it very truncated and a very long answer for your very short question <laughs> is, is that the, the reason this one felt so different is because this one truly felt more like theater than anything else I've ever done. You know, live theater. Yeah. Uh, would, you, would you agree so. with that, Elisa? Absolutely. Live theater with, with a, kind of a choose-your-own-adventure uh, consequences between each thing. It definitely had that feel. And it, it, aside from just it being live theater, we had, we had to go with the flow on whatever was going to happen. I remember right during the Dark and Dicey game, uh, we knew that whatever happened in their game was going to have a major consequence for the next for the next off the table game, and I remember oh, you mean for being the for the rivals of Waterdeep game when they yeah, had their, their puzzle with the stones. Oh yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so when they were um, when they had the stones out there, I was in the green I was in the green room, and watching them either solve or not solve that puzzle. And I was like, oh, I don't think they're going to solve it. And it was about five minutes too. And I'm like, they're not going to solve it. They're not going to solve it. So I ran. And I found Ivan, and I was like, because he was prepping for the next live game, and so he wasn't able to be like watching it live. And so I ran, and I found him like, they're not going to solve it. We need to rewrite this part of the story on the fly. Like they, they're not going to get these clues. And he's like, okay, yep. we can do that. And he was totally, he was on it, and super professional. And he's like, okay, we've got this. And so I run back, and there's two minutes left in the game and I'm watching and they solve it. <laughs> so I ran back to Ivan. I'm like, they solved it. It's okay. I actually, <laughs> okay, I actually remember, true. I remember you running back, but I also remember getting a text on my phone and it was all caps and it was from you. And it just said, they solved it. <laughs> Exclamation point. 
Okay, yes. Nice. And then, of course, because we don't have our phones on it, you came too, uh, just to make sure that I double, triple knew that they solved it. But I do because remember seeing that text live. from you. Yeah, it was so seamless that day, and everything was running like clockwork. And so I didn't want you to go live because I obviously can't talk to you once you go live, and except for my crazy hand waving. And so, um, but yeah, it, it, it's just one of those things where, yeah, it, it was just like live theater, but you never know what's going to happen. And we, we don't even know what's going to happen. You so. changed, but you literally are changing the script right before you go on stage. So right. uh, Dungeon Master does it a little bit, but they have a different format where they they have their improvisers all playing NPCs and then they have their... Um, and then they have their cast as like as like people from the audience that they interact with, uh, but it's but it is live stage, um, and it is not recorded or meant for an audience. So I. I I feel like Dungeon Master is actually the one who gets to do it. Plus, they also have like uh, a whole week of rehearsals uh, with all of their oh, really? characters before we get into. It. Yeah, so they they like our tra traditional stage troupe. They go and go through all the different things that players could hit while they hit the different story points. Um, you know, I think I talked to our NPC guardsmen who are going to do the third off the table session, uh, Mr. Whitefire that and day. his team of guards. I I talked to them that morning about yeah. what was going to go down, but they were awesome. I was just going to say, were pros, man. they, they, yeah, the, the, the interactions with them in the, in the final session, like were superb. Killed it. Killed it. I was so proud of that guard, uh, just winging it with Satine while Satine, and one of the, again, a thing to celebrate for her as well too, is she realized at some point that that her interaction with that guardsman needed to kind of like go into the background. So they seamlessly without even prompting from me went to like miming and, and, and lip syncing while while the other players were frantically looking through the uh, through the stuff, and I thought that was, <laughs> it was so good of them to do that. Yeah, so. and it was only after like the third session that people started to feel like, oh yeah, this is how it would work in a live, you know. That's how we do with Dread, man. First episode, like Dread, when we first did that first one, like I was so terrified that we were going to bore the hell out of our audience because nothing happened, Greg, <laughs> for that first episode. <laughs> They didn't even pull a block from the tower until like an hour into the first session, you know? Yeah. And, and like, this I is not working, but it, 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 it's, it's compelling somehow because it's like that threat of the gaming thing happening is, is all you need almost. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it ended up working out totally fine. And same boat with this one. I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat. And I know that we would like, we would, we would know how to bring up the quality of it so much because we knew what we needed to do in order to make it more friendly for camera. Yeah. Because we had a good idea anyway. Even with two shows under my belt, you learn something new every show. For sure. You know? Yeah. Well, what I like about what you guys are saying too is that it's not... It's Other than the production value and the other people involved in it and all the props and the costumes and things like that, it's not that dissimilar from how people run a D&D &D session. Right? Like you're always... I mean, just what you're saying. Like it doesn't end up being... You know, go in exactly the way you planned it because your players are always going to do something different and you like something that you prepared, you know, uh, uh, six different scenarios in your head. All right, these are the six things they're going to do. They're going to find a seventh, you know, and then once you prepare mm -hmm. for that, they're going to find yeah. an eighth. Right. So there's all of these things that uh, uh, sound true to everybody who's ever run a game of D&D &D, uh, to, to, to what we put, what we did. Absolutely. And the nice thing. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Go ahead, Lisa. Oh, I say absolutely. Like what, even in your example of what Satine was doing with the guard, it was making me think while you're talking um, just about how regular play goes in in D and D. Like 
yes, everybody sort of takes their turn. Yeah, and we didn't do like traditional combat or anything like that, but um, because we didn't want to do that. Like, <laughs> um, but no. but Next time, even, when, nope. even in a good game, even while co- you're in combat or anything where people are saying what they are doing, um, everybody always says, while so-and-so is doing that, I'm doing this. And so I was thinking yeah. when you were talking about what Satine was doing with the guard, that's exactly how that played out on, on screen. While they were looking for the stones, she was inter- distracting the guard, and, you know, and, and while they, uh, you know, they were digging through everything there, they had other guards coming through and, you know, maybe there was another chest that needed to be seen and the camera was panning in on that, but nobody, they, the players didn't know. And there were, I don't know, there was a lot going on that would have normally been going on in a regular, just at the table session. You just got to see it. Yep. Yeah, and that was the whole and idea, was to make it more of like a heightened version of D&D where you don't get to see any of that stuff, but here you could actually just, we could physically represent it. And it's always yep. better when players don't know that the cameras are there, like they're aware yeah. of it, but I've also found that in a show format like this when it's live, it's the exact opposite. You have to be extremely aware of where cameras are because we we only had um, we only had what we had to work with in order to uh, to get the coverage on it. I actually had to make all the players extremely aware of where cameras were and make pauses and you know kind of allow for cameras to get in place to do that. Which normally, if I was going for dramatic storytelling, be like the worst thing on the planet. Um, but mm. since this is fun and it's uplifting and it's D and D, it's not so much an issue, you know. And that's I think what well, I think the first thing we found out too real quickly in that first session, uh, Greg, is is that. This this show is way more fun when we all just let go and let the silly come out a little bit. Yeah. Like once we were a little aware of what we were doing and how we were doing it, people had more fun. Then it wasn't it it didn't have that it had that new kind of fresh fun energy to it. Um, and I think that helped a ton. Yeah, because um, everybody was like you know yeah. a, a little bit un, unclear and unsure, and you know wanted to make sure it was the best yeah. that they could do. So nobody and so yeah, there was going to be that little bit of tension uh, when we started. And I do think that first session was more like a, uh, uh, I don't want to say a rough draft, but it was like the the the, the first you know thing out the gate, which you know it's never going to be your best foot forward uh, well, for something. Creative. I also, it's just we. I mean, I didn't even know. Like Greg, none of us knew. Like everyone who was attached to that show had no idea what we were getting ourselves into until we were actually there and doing it. And then once we found it, it was awesome. Yeah. It was there. And it didn't take, which is always great. Right. It only took one hour-long session for it to be like, oh, okay, now we got this. And it all clicks together. I mean, like like you said, everything, I think, (laughs) I loved all the conversations that happened in the awning portal. Uh, you know, I think only thing in hindsight would be to what you're saying is like, let's mic everybody and like get everybody lit enough so that they really could just go and uh, and then we'd have clues for each one of them and everything so they would all be more integrated. That would be the only thing I think I would change. I agree. And it's and it's all the good news is that uh, these production notes are the easiest to address in uh, <laughs> in any kind of future projects. So it's the big problems like, wow, that um that wasn't honest or sincere or fun at all. Those are the notes you you have to worry about and being like, okay, well, uh, maybe this wasn't a good idea. But I don't think anyone, at least as far as what we're concerned, I don't think anybody got that. I think everyone had a really good time seeing D&D kind of come to life. And then letting the mechanics get out of the way with the with the, with the um, the random number deck. So yeah, uh, kind of just help up pacing a little bit. So, do you, uh, you know. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the number deck and how that worked? Uh, so when, when Greg, when you first approached me about this, the first 
honest thing I had to ask myself is how do you make this D&D without getting involved in all the things that usually are challenging when you're on the table, which is pacing, you know, because the big difference between a table session like this and an off the table session is pacing. It really is. And because you don't have a huge opportunity to stop and sit and do math and reference numbers, um, which is something very common at a table game, even if it's just looking down at your sheet and then, you know, doing a few seconds and then rolling into it. Yeah. Um, but you don't even have that luxury in, uh, in something like this. So, but you still need to make it feel like there's consequences and that there are things that are happening, that there are things like what uh, Elisa built into it with our guard tower where, you know, you make choices and there are consequences. But even just on a standard check-to-check basis, um, it basically floated this idea of like, okay, well, how can we roll a dice uh, without rolling a dice? Right. And that's where we came up with the, uh, the tarot cards. And the tarot cards are essentially really easy to show camera because they're big letters on cards. And it's still, as far as a number generator goes, it still is about as valid as rolling a dice. Although it seemed like they were all rolling pretty low. Um, they did not. As far as drawing from the They did the not pick those cards very well. Yeah. <laughs> they did not do it very well. They also didn't spend their boons very well either. They, they had a lot of bonuses that they were pulling and they weren't using them. I don't know if they forgot about it and all the tension, but they, they had opportunities, uh, but they still got by. Yeah. They still got by, and uh, and it's okay because you know failure moves forward as with anything. So it's it is it is still a little bit different on that. So it is still when you do these off the tables, there is very much like it's not as much of a gray scale of success and failure as you would as you would put on like on the table because you know we, I can't I can't generate like you know, a random monster encounter on an off the table session, or I can't, you know, have them decide to solve a problem with a fireball in an off the table session. Like there's a lot, there is a lot more like narrative, um, free form that you can get on the table, but there is a lot that you can do on the table, especially if you prepare the audience in the meantime to be like, okay, well, you know, just so you know, anything can happen. And uh, we we stepped away from combat in this for lots of different reasons. One, because you know we didn't want we, it was a safety issue and a liability issue. Um, and two, there is just a uh, a general sense of like how's this going to fit in like the water deep you know um, intrigue and kind of stealth and uh, diplomacy kind of session. Yeah. But I do think it is possible. It is just going to involve a, even more cogs. <laughs> it's pretty hard to do though live because especially if you don't want to script anything because nope, if you yeah. have player characters that get involved with combat and you're not you don't have any choreography it can become a mess so no, and, and and how we handled and how we handled combat in dread and madness is i just generated these npcs in the theater of the imagination and they resolved them with pulls you know so narratively we described combat but we never played it out right you know right. like if they wanted to get up and swing the bat and like, you know, pantomime it as a thing and go into it, then that was fine. But, you know, the 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 sagas of sundry narrative space allowed for a theater of the imagination. And because we had so many NPCs in our world, we kind of like in my mind, if 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 I was going to generate an NPC out of nowhere, I should probably have him on standby. And I we don't necessarily want it to do that. Well, and so know? much of D D combat is 
you know, fantasy-oriented as well. I mean, you know, there's you, there's the swords and the bows and the more mundane things that we might have been able to, to dramatize if you came to the Sunday uh, sessions and saw the stunt performers uh, from Creative Combat mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, the folks from the Gentleman uh, Adventurers. Um, it's possible, but it's with rehearsal and timing and all that stuff. It's with rehearsal. Yeah, but yes. we, it's also really difficult to get across the, the fireballs and the things that magic missiles yes. and the things that's that, why, that like... That's when you have to land on the theater of the imagination a ton. You got to yeah. lean on that for that. Yeah, for and sure. we very early on were like, we're not going to do any combat in any of these sessions. Uh, and we tried to make sure the actors uh, and players were like, no, guys, you know, even if it feels like it might be a combat thing, just don't and go with it. And, you know, that led to some hilarious, uh, I think, with uh, Kate Welch. Well, just Rosie Beestinger. I think she had the instinct. She wanted to fight, and she's like, "Oh no!" <laughs> she wanted to fight. She wanted to fight, but she's like, "I know right, here punching one of those city guards." <laughs> yeah, take my staff instead, yeah. and then you know get let off with, with which I think you know made. Yeah, I remember I actually remember her saying, "I remember her saying like, can I fight back?" And I was like, "Nope, you can't. <laughs> no, you cannot. Not in this session." <laughs> and that's okay because it's still. You know, there's still it's still so interesting. It's so wild west, Greg. I have so many ideas and I have so many ways to kind of like address a lot of the things we learned in Stream of Many yeah. Eyes. Um, but it's something you just you just learn and adapt as everything you it's do. Just like, like I always games. I mean, you know, uh, going back to the to the puzzles, I think one of the things that I w- wanted to get realized and I think we did do it pretty well in the third session, but was to have it feel a little bit more claustrophobic and have the uh, last session be in a puzzle room itself. So have right. almost, you know, you even be a disembodied voice as the dungeon master to be able to speak to them and actually have them feel uh, entrapped. And and at least I know you have lots of experience with puzzle rooms. So I was like, oh, that was, this is going to be great, putting them, uh, all these actors together, and we'll have the cameras in the right way so it would feel, you know, get some of that kind of suspense uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the real-world puzzle solving plus with the feeling of, like, you know, the walls closing in too. Right. Originally, that last yeah. puzzle was written in that way, um, but logistically, uh, we weren't able to get it done with the sets that we had. Um, but that is still something that is something that I'd like to see in a future show. Yeah. Uh, so we can talk about that another time. Yeah. What would you but, do uh, differently? What would you think you would, you would do if you had your druthers for something like that? Uh, well, I definitely would want to do a fourth wall removed escape room style room um, where they had they felt more. I mean, I know that they had in their right minds, they had the time pressure because they knew we had an hour and they had to solve a puzzle. But something that put a little bit more pressure on them. I also looking at everything, I would want to go over with the players um, just what abilities they have and for them to not forget about the fact that they are playing Dungeons and Dragons. One comment that I made to Ivan at the end of the day was the realization that I had that none of them asked to like roll for perception, mm. right? At any point in time, if they would have said, hey, what do, what do I see? Because they could actually see, they didn't think about it. But if they would have asked the DM, what do I see? He could have pointed out something maybe that they weren't actually seeing with their own eyes, like a specific article in the new, in the newspaper that we made, the Waterdeep Wazoo, um, or, or something like that, where they could have gotten a little bit more information if they had remembered live on camera that they are playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? And so I think that right. for the next time, I want to even insert more D&D into it. Um, and I... 
now after running through it all, it all worked out really well, but I, I have so many ideas for how to do that. Nice. Yeah, and on the and on the flip side, I wanted to incorporate a lot more things that represent things. So we in sagas, we did a lot of like um, physical challenges or skill challenges that would represent situations in the theater of the mind. And I think there's a great way to incorporate that into this as well too, where it's not necessarily die based or it's skill based, but it's like it's the actual players physically doing something. Mm -hmm. And to be a certain degree, that does remove a little bit of the like I'm playing a fantasy character in a fantasy world um but then i also really like this idea of challenging the physical players themselves in order to pull something out to, to kind of like put that uh it's more immersion in my mind yeah you know? yeah uh, and i think i think one of my favorite moments was when they were pulling through and trying to get the stone of color out of the fish tank when they when they finally found it for that reason right was they were doing something that was physically challenging uh, uh to do and then having mark uh, uh hume just run off with it was one of my favorite moments <laughs> Yeah, and he made and he played and they played it all great. And I think to Elisa's point, like uh, puzzles that lean more into D and D or stuff that allows to lean into D and D, where you can make checks and like checks directly give you either hints or provide blockades with failures, but still they're just blockades. You can go around them. Um, I think is something that would be extremely fun because D and D is such a you know here are my tools how do I solve the problem with my tools yeah and I think Elisa to your to your point like if we can use those tools a little more rather than just kind of it being a black and white success or failure kind of option and finding ways to integrate those tools into the setting um, would be extremely exciting it's. Uh, and then I guess it all just comes down to logistics as well, too. In my mind, I would definitely, if we're going to be putting NPCs into a game for the next time around again, um, I'm going to want to, like, basically give every NPC, uh, like, a two-page story that they have to work off of. So if they have to talk, then they have a good amount of time to talk about what they have to need, knowing they need to cut it off at any one particular point. Or even better, um, let them generate their two-page story. Well, of course. Yeah, yeah right? let them hold into it. And a lot of them... And a lot of them had like a paragraph or two paragraphs, which was fine for like the initial five seconds that they were going into it. But if they wanted to dive any deeper, um, we, you know, they needed more situational awareness of what was going on in the setting in right. order to provide information or not, because they were all so worried that I, they were going to say something wrong. They were constantly looking at me and I would like to give them all the confidence to be able to speak with authority knowing that they're not going to mess they something up. They should have been looking know? at Elisa the whole time with the whiteboard being like, yes, you're doing right. good. <laughs> no, go back. Take up, yeah. take back what you just said and don't let them know that information. We well, did that. I'm, I'm of the mind of like giving the NPC, well, NPCs that have valuable information, having them have a backstory is very important and letting them go with it is great. Um, and people like Gil and, and the others that were on, on set were doing a great job with it. Yeah. But any other just stand-in NPCs that didn't really have a lot of information to give, I'm still of the mindset of giving them the traditional video game RPG one line, like, the chickens look healthy today, whatever. And then any time they would come up to them, they'd give the same line. And they're like, okay, this person has, has no information, right? And move on. And the reason why is because we had an hour to work with on these office the table games. So we didn't want to waste too much time. Right, because you could have so, gone down the rabbit hole pretty pretty easily. Oh yeah. That that hour went by so fast in each so I fast. couldn't believe it. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, it's time that they were already, you know, holding up the twenty minutes left, then ten minutes left whiteboards and right next to me. I'm like, what? How's that possible? <laughs> so yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and we we had to control that flow of information directly. And and uh, I, I I should say I didn't want to give NPCs more information so that they would run the clock out. I just didn't right. want them to look at me like scared does most of the time <laughs> when they were when they were pulling off good information. Like our, our butcher, I think, really did the best beat where he had a couple of really short direct lines, the ogre, and he and he every single time they tried to get information out of him, he basically gave them a wall that they sat in front of. But it wasn't the same line over and over again. He was just like, you know, are you going to buy meat? You know, then get out. Kind right. Of a, kind of a right. Murag, the uh, the half work butcher. Murag. Yeah, yeah, he did a great job uh, with believe... that. He's, he's such a good DM in general, so he knows how to how to juggle stuff. Like yeah, that, that, that was uh, Dallas Bloom. Yeah, Dallas he, Bloom. Yeah. Dallas Bloom, thank you. Yeah, I was trying to look up his name as I was uh, talking to you guys. I'm like, oh, I remember his name. I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> he's fantastic. He was a friend. He's a friend of uh, uh, several of the uh, women in Girls Guts Glory. Uh, so when when oh, cool. we started talking to him, he he immediately had this idea. He's like, I want to play a half orc. We're like, great. We don't have a lot of half orcs. That'd be awesome. He's like, I think I want to be a butcher. And then I told that to Aaron Baroud, our our designer, uh, and he's like, I can get some meat. I can get some fake meat. And we're like, okay, uh, sure, get some fake meat. And then that those conversations right. just led to that character growing and growing and growing to the fact where Dallas brought in uh, uh, little plastic cockroaches, cockroaches to put on the yeah. meat. That like I think that little detail alone sold the the fantasy of him being this uh, this shop owner. So it was it was really kind of great. And I, yeah, I, I I loved him. And I loved uh, Gill's whole display as the blacksmith. Uh, really sold uh, yeah. that as a as being something real too. It was good stuff. Yeah, they're all great. They all they all are so passionate and so just wanted to. They all just wanted to bring a really good product to to the bore. Yeah. You know. So yeah. So final question, Ivan. Uh, I don't think we actually got to talk about this because the uh, second session, the players found the door. At least they wanted to go towards the door that was <laughs> the solve. And I don't think any of us were like. Oh, what if they just go to the the door, the first door, and it's the one they need? What do we do then? <laughs> so, did you oh, expertly just be like, eh, yeah? Did you stretch? Was that was that you being like, wait a second? Uh, how how did do you do I that? Have to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> you deflected very well. I I was standing in the in the shadows, right like where the city guard was hiding, and I saw them go to the door. I'm like, oh my god, they're gonna pick the, they're gonna go through the door. They're gonna go through the door, and um. And I think it, you you course corrected really well, Ivan. You were like, oh, well, are you sure? Because the city guard is right there. And if you break into somebody's house and it's not the right one. And then and it made them step back and say, OK, maybe we should think about this before we just go barging into some poor person's house. Right. That was the right <laughs> one. The green door. Damn it. Yeah. And then I think yeah. the guards walked out right as you said that, too. And I think that sold time. it kind of immediately being like, oh, okay, there, there's, there's a danger element here that we didn't know about. Oh, yeah, I didn't mean to – I didn't mean to like – I hope I didn't show I, – I know for the people who knew what the right answer was, I was showing my hand very obviously. Um, but I really didn't want to accidentally tip off the players as well too, and make it look like I was deflecting them hard, you know. So uh, – yeah, but that I, you know, I'm I'm happy the way that turned out. Yeah, so. you pulled it off well. It's just like a table game. It's like you're the DM and somebody wants to touch this like weird pillar in the middle of the table, and and you want you know the answer is to touch it right, but the DM's like, so you really want to touch that? And then they think, well, maybe not. And then they they think about it for a little while, and that's what a DM yeah, is supposed uh, to do. <laughs> 
the it's the like Ren and Stimpy. It's like maybe something bad, maybe something good. <laughs> I guess we'll never know. <laughs> that, uh, that was pretty much the entire session. <laughs> it was, it was... Yeah, yeah, it's truth. They were um, they were they were good though, and I think that logic puzzle, like having, I, I definitely imagine worlds down in the future where we have puzzles that also challenge their. Um, challenge their endurance and their will as well too it's like yeah. how do we how do we get them to in my mind i mean i guess it's just the horror guy in me it's like it, as much as much physical and emotional pain i can put them in the better you know right right uh, like like b, uh, b dave i thought did wonderfully as the, as the monk but there wasn't a lot of very monk centric content for him to kind of you know do so how, how interesting would, would that have been given him I would have loved to have given him something simple like I mean in, in Sagas of Sundry we actually had if uh, if the, one, any of the char- any of the characters wanted to break down a door inside of the dilapidated house I had those like really those karate like rebreakable boards that you know don't have a lot of resistance if it's just one of them but they stack yeah. them up in order to, like make it more difficult Yeah uh, I would have loved to have had like something like that where I actually had something for him to physically break. It wasn't actually going to hurt him or, you know, prevent any physical harm, but which has been really great to see him like do a couple of monkish moves and had something as a result of that. Right. Um, and it's still, it's just all stuff to think about for later. Like you gotta, you gotta design, you gotta design these shows within parameters and you gotta, and you gotta, um, you gotta always think about what's best right now for the show. But you know, you know, Good news is you get to dream about more stuff later. Right. So. And so we have to figure out how to incorporate uh, uh, the D&D improv musical that we're doing next year. <laughs> I'm totally game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can do it. Nice. We'll, yeah. get, uh, we'll, we'll get the pianist uh, just doing some, you know. Improv uh, pianist. Just keep you know it going. Are on Twitter right now. D and D improv musical. <laughs> musical musical. I've said a couple of times. I don't know if improv musical is going to work or not. But uh, you got to have a good pianist, man. So it's just like, all right, James, give me a beat. Yeah, and he's like, here we go. <laughs> It'll be like uh, you know, from uh, whose line is it anyway? Uh, yep. Just having a go with uh, rhyming couplets. I think it might work. Well, thank you guys yeah. uh, for all of your hard work in, in, in putting together the off-the-table sessions. Uh, I think it really played off uh, really well, and I got people excited and talking about, you know, what, what's the possibilities for D&D in the future. So uh, have you guys gotten any feedback from anybody who's watched it that, uh, you know, seems worthwhile I've to share? I've gotten nothing but incredibly positive feedback. Uh, everybody seemed to really love it, and people are re-watching it over and over again, looking for new things, which is really cool to hear. And I think everybody's really jazzed about the new products coming out, and that's exactly what it was supposed to do. Nice. Yeah, I same boat. People, I've only been Twitter has only been kind as far as oh, what's been going on with the sessions, and you know, I I'm my own worst critic, so I know what I would always like. But at the same time, I was really super happy for what it meant for the sh- for the format as far as the show goes, and then just kind of seeing people get. Stupid excited about Waterdeep again. Like my my buddy Robert Watts, who was the director, uh, the stage manager for the day. Yeah. Like we used to play campaigns way back.
back in the day. We were in like a two and a half year long campaign together, but he hasn't played in a couple of years. He came after me after the show was done. It's like, and I really want to do a water deep session. Nice. <laughs> you know, it's like that's perfect. That's exactly what this is. That's yeah. so good. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and Rob, you know, shout out to Robert for all of the hard work he put into uh, making this. He he right. landed in the AD role uh, pretty hardcore, and I don't think we it would have been the same show if he wasn't there. Uh, uh, being the liaison between you guys, him and, Doug, and the- him and Dirk were amazing. It was uh, it was a shame we missed Adam Lawson um, on the show down the road, but Dirk and and Robert just killed it. So yeah. you know, absolutely, yeah, Adam would have been fantastic as well. But uh, next time for all three will be this next uh, time. great little triumvirate of, uh, of of talking heads telling us, no, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. We we definitely. Uh, it definitely was an experience, and it was an awesome one. So awesome. thank you for getting us involved. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Elisa. Now I have uh, several puzzles in my back pocket I can pull out at any moment. Be like, yeah, <laughs> here we go. No one's going to understand them, but you can do it. Uh, so thank They'll you. Don't understand them. Don't, don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. You can always give me a ring and say, hey, what do you suggest for this? I'm here. That's what I'm going to need. I don't have that skill of hinting that, that you do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, we will uh, uh, end this now, but then we'll 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 be talking more in the future for for all the musicals we're going to be producing. Sweet, <laughs> sure thing. Thanks, you thank guys. Thank you so much. So now that you got a chance to listen to that interview, what would you ask? <laughs> I would say, wow. What are you going to do next year? Uh, it's going to be a D and D musical. I keep you know, saying that, but, but where we, I feel like it's getting traction. It's, I, it, it, people want it. Yeah, right. They do. They want it out there. And now the thing is, I don't know. Do you think it should be an improv musical? Like, you know, whose line is it anyway? Or do you think it should be just a musical that's written uh, about Dungeons and Dragons? Both. Yeah, okay. Right? Like yeah. have an element of improv in it, but have most of it be planned out ahead of time. Maybe. I like that. Yeah. All right. I would like to write some songs. Are you a songwriter? I'm a, I am a, like a mad, crazy, rhyming genius. I'm just going to put well, that out Well, that's all there. you need in a song I know. is just some rhymes. I can't do the music, but, but this guy could help with that. Can we give, uh, can we give uh, Shelly a beat and see if she can actually rhyme right now? Go. I'll put a beat on it. <laughs> I am a rhymer. <laughs> give me a timer. <laughs> Don't call me an old timer. <laughs> Or I'll cut you. <laughs> and then the song just ends. Yep. Done. <laughs> we got our first song. First track. Musical. First track. Uh, yep. Everybody is going to record this now and send it into uh, okay. uh, me at uh, Greg I, Tito on I Twitter. I can do this. I can uh, rhyme. Wh- where can they send their lyrics to you? At Shelly Moo. Nice. You've already Coming got like your, you. You've already got your stage name ready to go. Shelly Moo? Shelly Moo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... What you're, that was you're, actually really cute, though. Like, at Origins, people did refer to me as Shelly Moo. Oh. Like, oh, so cute. And did you tell your mom? You were like, yeah, Mommy, it's they're calling me Shelly Moo. Because they like me. They really <laughs> do. <laughs> did, you, did people tell you that, that they liked me? Because I heard a lot of people wanted to talk to me to tell me how much they liked you. Oh, yeah. No, that's exactly what I heard, too. They were like, oh, I wish Shelly, I wish I could. I'm like, Shelly's here. You can go say hi to her and like let her know the, how awesome she is. Ooh, where's Tito? I really like Tito. <laughs> that's cool. Oh, I'll tell him you said that. Oh, well, thanks for telling so me. I'm telling that's you nice. now. But they don't know that you are the uh, uh, life force of this podcast. It's because I tell everyone that it's really you. <laughs> See, it's both of us. We lift each other up. It's, right. it's been, oh, yeah. it's been a thing. Yeah. I was totally going to take credit for that. 
<laughs> it's true. On my own. Like it's me. It's on me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I tell everyone it's you. I'm like I don't, I don't do anything. He just tells me when to show up. And, that is, and then comes and gets me because I didn't show up. <laughs> and then when I come to get you, you you scream uh, boo and I fall down on the ground. Oh, that was so good. That was really good. <laughs> I think I disturbed like at least four other meetings too as we did it, which made it Can very I happy. Can I tell you another story? Yeah. That has nothing to do with anything. Sure. <laughs> the best time to do that is on microphone, I think. <laughs> I was getting my hair cut. <laughs> I was not there, but... Apparently, one of the stylists was sitting on a stool, and the stool gave out. <laughs> and she fell off the stool, but she fell so hard that she farted. <laughs> is, is Quinn here? I know. This is I like, didn't even tell him the story. He was, oh, Look, like, I'm crying. It's so funny. It's like custom made like, for him. <laughs> it was like quiet in the salon and thump. <laughs> <laughs> She was already so embarrassed that she fell off a stool. Oh, my God. But she was like, hit the so ground bad. so hard, it just came up. Was it someone waiting in line or was it a stylist? It was a stylist. Oh, no. Yeah. So then she had to like go cut someone's hair up. She, like, she was in the middle of cutting someone's hair when this <laughs> happened. <laughs> oh, my God. So I laughed for like 20 minutes about that. that I wasn't is, even there and it's see, funny. That is how you roll a one. And you make entertainment for everyone around you. Except for you. Except for me. I think she probably quit and never came back. She's like, I, I hate this one. <laughs> I have to go. <laughs> I cannot face these people. Yeah. Did she didn't like say like, oh, damn, you Weight Watchers for their beans. <laughs> Zero points. No. This was about you, wasn't it? This was you, wasn't it? No way. If it was me, I would I would have opened with this story. <laughs> That's, that would have been the only change. All right. Well, I, I think the stool is about to give out underneath us. <laughs> so let's uh, uh, knock over some rocks and let everybody die. <gasps> okay. Thanks for listening to Dragon Talk, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>